0: Welcome to the NPS MedicineWise podcast, helping health professionals stay up to date with the latest news and evidence about medicines and medical tests. Thank you and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Caroline West. I'm a GP and medical advisor to NPS MedicineWise. Now, our skin is one of our most precious organs. Amongst other things, it helps us regulate heat, feel sensations and ward off infections as a first line of defence. Many of us, though, will suffer with a skin condition at some stage like eczema or acne. Appropriate management makes all the difference, not just to how the skin functions, looks and feels, but also to how someone feels about themselves and their quality of life. To take us through the latest on skin, dermatologist Dr. Lee Chin Wong joins me. She's a member of the Australasian College of Dermatologists and is the head of the dermatology department at Children's Hospital Westmead. Dr. Wong has declared she's on numerous advisory and research groups working with pharmaceutical companies. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for the privilege of having a chat with you today. Well, I'm certain that I'll learn plenty myself because as a GP, I often see people with skin conditions and eczema is probably the thing I see most commonly because Mm. so many people have it, particularly children. Can you take me through just a quick snapshot of how common it is and what it's like out there in, in terms of the distribution between kids and adults, for example?
1: Yes, in fact, it is incredibly common and 20% of our paediatric population would suffer from eczema or atopic dermatitis in some form or another. Mostly, thank goodness, it's mild, but sometimes it can be so severe and debilitating And I think the statistics that I most recently read was that in Australia, there are a hundred thousand Australians that are suffering from very, very severe atopic dermatitis. Wow. And we are seeing more and more and recognizing that it is not just skin deep and it is not just itchy skin, but profoundly can be uh, so debilitating not only for the child uh, for how they develop but also for the whole family and we're learning more and more about how important it is to treat all aspects of their psychological psychosocial development.
0: Mm. Oh it can have a huge impact on how somebody feels about themselves and and of course for a parent managing a small child it's it can be very stressful. Um, yes having a kid with severe eczema in particular. But if we think about eczema, how do we actually work out whether it's eczema or whether it's just a transient sort of skin irritation? How do we actually define it?
1: So usually eczema will present around three months of age. And what we see is the typical, we are all familiar with the very red, itchy, scaly skin. Thankfully, if it's mild, it will just be in the flexural aspects of the limbs, maybe on the face a little bit. But then the main feature is that it is itchy. And that's going to differentiate it from a transient rash that maybe you might get, for instance, associated with a viral infection. So if it's itchy and also a clue is that there's a good family history of not only parents getting eczema, but as well an atopic background of as well having hay fever and asthma, then that will point towards this being atopic
0: dermatitis. And is it one of those things that in kids because I know with kids asthma for example they can sometimes grow out of it or it can change in terms of its pattern. Yeah. What's the story with eczema?
1: So the mantra that I say to all my patients and their families are that there is no cure and no one wants to hear that. Who wants to hear that when they come to see you? But there is no cure because it is a genetic and chronic condition but certainly we can clear we're aiming to control the eczema and every year it does improve. So Clinically, by the time they get to school, mostly kids are able to sit on the carpet, for instance, and not get too affected. But you never outgrow it as such. So the example that I give is they do pretty well during school. And then at 18, they decide to go backpacking with their mates. And they go to the Himalayas and they wear woolen scarves, woolen beanies. They're not eating well. They're not sleeping well. And they ring home and they go, I've just got this really itchy rash. What is it? And you say, oh, well, you've got eczema. You've always had eczema. So if the right triggers are there, then they will get a flare throughout their life.
0: And just take me through the genetics because that's really interesting what we've sort of discovered about those links with eczema.
1: Well, all the time we're learning more about the polygenetics and the different endotypes that then will determine what the phenotypes are. But we we known for quite some time now about the filaggrin mutation, which causes the skin barrier defect. And that's really important because we know that a defective skin barrier is what is going to potentially at times lead to the development of allergies. But it's key to try and get that skin barrier back intact if we're going to have any chance of longevity in remission of and looking after the skin. So the filaggrin mutation, we also know that there is a dysregulation of the IL-4 and the IL-13 pathway. And uh, recently we've had game-changing medications that now target the IL-4 and IL-13 pathway and really are making the treatment of severe eczema so much more bearable.
0: Mm, I mean, that's really interesting. Perhaps we can come back to that because that's the biologics that you're talking about there that yes. some people might have heard about. So I'd like to come back to that because I find that really interesting with where things are heading. Yeah. But if we go back to this sense of the treatment arc, if you like, because I guess that a lot of people when they have eczema will be trying stuff themselves to start with yeah. before they come in, particularly parents with eczema and children. It may be some time before they even present. But what are some of the simple things that people can do that actually make a difference to eczema and its trajectory?
1: So I think to start off with the first conversation to have is that it's important to know the triggers. And even if you are doing everything right for your child, if the weather changes from suddenly very hot to very cold, so sudden changes of weather will flare eczema, as will viral infections Regardless of whether it causes you know, gastro or an upper respiratory tract infection, viral infections will cause a flare, as well if you're run down. Systemically, your immune system is challenged and um, vaccinations will also always flare eczema. So I have seen following the COVID vaccinations, all my eczemas have gone off. So those things we really can't prevent. But what we can is that it's important to avoid anything rough on our skin because the basic defect is this defective or very sensitive skin barrier. So removing all tags of clothes, uh, making sure that you're not wearing rough clothes like woolen jumpers, woolen scarves, avoiding lambskin, sheepskin underlays, and then avoiding anything fragranced. So there's a great myth that if it's organic and if it's natural, it's going to be good for the skin. But if it has a fragrance, it's going to irritate the skin. Mm. So avoid calendula products, uh, you know, Mugu, goat's milk soap, anything that has a fragrance, including detol cleaning products and fragrance softeners, and that really then just cuts down very quickly how irritated our skin can get. I always say to parents to moisturize before you take your kid into the pool for swimming lessons, because that allows a barrier to be formed on the skin and always rinse off at the pool immediately and moisturize and try to avoid contact with grass, carpet and sand. But saying that, you know, kids are going to, they gravitate like magnets to sand pits. And so you can't stop that. That's, developmental but you know that that's going to trigger a mild flare
0: so it's interesting isn't it with the tags and i hadn't heard that one before actually that's a really good tip isn't it to sort of reduce any of those little niggly bits that might scratch or irritate the skin yes but what about all the synthetics i mean i know you've mentioned a lot about wool but you know a lot of kids they're lucky to even have anything wool in the cupboard anymore yes you know their grandmas don't knit them scarves and jumpers anymore They're all wearing these synthetics. I mean, are we getting the same sort of problem with these strange synthetic fibres or not? I
1: think that there's so much money that you have to spend when you have a child with eczema or you have eczema. And so to then search for that, it's like the golden egg to find a pure cotton top. So I just say smooth. Anything smooth is okay. And in fact, you know, to do wet dressings at home, which we can talk about later, The cheapest way to get it is go to Target or Kmart and get leggings. So there is going to be some lycra or some synthetic fibers in there, but it's smooth and you can use that as a wet dressing. Mm. So Mm. I don't mind smooth, cheap clothing.
0: Okay, so the wet dressings, let's let's sort of move on to that because you've taken us there. You're talking about using a cream, like a steroid cream yeah. uh, on the skin and that will often be the first thing that's prescribed for a child apart from these other basic things that people can do for themselves and this can be applied. I mean, I've seen all sorts of pitfalls here though. I mean, one of the things I've seen is that Particularly if a child has eczema, that parents are very reluctant to use much of this cream on them because they've either been told, use it really sparingly by a well meaning person, or a pharmacist has mentioned, you know, look out for how much you use, or they've seen something on TikTok that says, oh my goodness, your child will have steroid withdrawal syndrome. Yes. What sort of messages do we need to put out there about the use of these creams?
1: So the key is to say that, well, I say that steroids is actually natural, we make it ourselves. And we are only using topical steroids to the affected areas. And it is absolutely safe to use it. But I use it intensively. So you hit it hard, you use it intensively until there's absolute complete clearance, so that the skin barrier is back intact. And then you stop. If you use it intermittently, like this, there is just no evidence at all that you're going to run into any problems. And Recently, there's been a whole new wave of steroid phobia because of the new TikTok videos that you've spoken about of the red man syndrome or the hashtag steroid withdrawal syndrome. And that is very, very rare. And it's usually seen, well, when it's present, it's in females and adults where they've used super potent topical steroids generally on the face or in the genital region daily for over a year. And that's just not the way that we're going to treat eczema. So we treat it really hard three times a day and then stop. And it's effective. And the families actually think, oh, my gosh, we're doing something that actually is going to work. And they can see the result. Because otherwise, to use a steroid suboptimally daily and a weaker steroid, you're just never going to see any improvement.
0: Everybody gives up. So would you have to get an authority script? Because to be honest, the actual amount that's dispensed on a regular script is so minuscule that it's not going to cover much. If you've got a kid with eczema all over their legs, it's like one tube is almost going to do one, one or two days, you know. So what should GPs in particular be thinking about here when they're initiating this sort of management?
1: So I would, yes, give an authority script and they're streamlined numbers that you can get easily. And I like using a strong, potent topical steroid for the body, such as elufrat, ointment, and ointment more than cream, because ointment will penetrate better and doesn't have preservatives like a cream. And give enough so that the message is that it's safe. You're happy to give a a good quantity. And it's also then cost effective. And I then want to say that there will be people like your next door neighbor or or Facebook or to say, are you sure you should be using it? And just, I mean, I suppose that's where you um, rely on your therapeutic relationship, because if you can just say, trust me for six weeks and then we'll chat and then you can decide whether, you know, how things have gone. But just that initial leap of faith is so important to get going.
0: Because I've seen kids where it's been very undertreated yes. because the parents have been so hesitant to sort of get in there aggressively to get on top of it because they're very worried about side effects. And then the, the child's just miserable. You know, for starters, they don't sleep because their skin's just so irritated that they're up all night and then they're, I don't know, it's much harder to settle them and it, it's oh, misery all around.
1: It is. And, and if you have a little child who isn't sleeping, then they, they're very, you know, we're up for failure to thrive which is just awful. And if the child doesn't sleep, everyone is miserable, as you say, the family's miserable. It's just a world of pain.
0: Mm. And you mentioned earlier on Lee Chin, about the biologics and where we're moving to in terms of the treatment yes. for severe eczema. What's the story there? What sort of come into the system and is used now?
1: I tell you what, it's the happiest time ever to be a dermatologist and a paediatric dermatologist because finally we actually can help and it's miraculous. It's a game changer. So Dupilumab or Dupixent is an IL-4, IL-13 inhibitor.
0: Can you explain what that is? Because we'll have some listeners who are consumers and they'll be going, what on earth does that mean?
1: <laughs> so it's a antibody. It's a monoclonal antibody that targets IL-4 or interleukin-4 receptor. So basically it's like um, when we have eczema, we have this pathway that in general is okay, but there are a couple of points in that pathway, like a path going up to your front door and a couple of the stones are crooked and you're going to trip. And every time you trip, you get a flare of eczema. So basically the IL-4, this dupilumab comes and it's like cement and it sticks on that crooked pathway, on that crooked so you don't trip and you can get to your front door Wow and as a consequence it's indefinite treatment because as soon as you take the aisle for away uh, which is given subcutaneously every fortnight uh, if you take it away then of course your pathway is going to be you know botched up again. So it is ongoing treatment Hmm. and it is for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis from 12 years upwards and it's for severe atopic dermatitis from six years upwards, six to 11 years. But that's not here in Australia yet. It's not PBS approved.
0: But it's on the way possibly.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's FDA approved already for six months to five years. Yeah. And it's just wonderful because, you know, for those really severe atopic dermatitis kids, if we can stop their skin barrier from ever becoming terribly bad, then they will not have that trajectory of severity, you know? So, from a, we can just stop the process right at the get go.
0: And when you say subcutaneous, you're talking about here for, for those listeners, you're talking about a subcutaneous injection. So that's a tiny weeny needle that's administered at home by a parent yep. once every two weeks for these children. And this is the medication that is not here yet, but it's on its way. That's right. And it's a pen, and it's like a it's a diabetic
1: little tiny needle. And in terms of side effects, the most common side effect about 20 to 30% might experience conjunctivitis and that passes. The more severe your eczema, the more likely you might experience this temporary conjunctivitis, and the more periorbital involvement as well, you are more likely to get itchy eyes. And just with regular use of eye drops, a bit of topical steroid eye drops, that passes, and it's very well controlled.
0: Is that the only biological that's going to be available or is available? Is this leading to an explosion in this area? And Everybody's coming on board and trying to develop these tools for, for eczema? Yes. So there are a number of other abs
1: or these monoclonal antibodies that, by the way, have all these incredible names that no one can pronounce. So they're all overseas at the moment. They haven't yet hit Australia. But we do have a tablet that is what we call a small molecule, and it is a JAK1 inhibitor. It's called upadacitinib, and It comes in 15 milligrams and 30 milligram tablets. It's as well for moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. So the JAK1 STAT pathway is another pathway that we know is wonky in the development of atopic dermatitis. So this is yet another inhibitor in the JAK1 pathway that again helps with severe eczema. And For adolescents, from 12 to 17 years of age, it's one tablet a day, 15 milligrams a day. And for adults, it's one to two tablets a day.
0: I mean, as you say, this is a really exciting shift, isn't it, in terms of our management of eczema? Because for years, we've just relied on the same old, the same old, same old. And suddenly, we've got these new approaches on the horizon, which, as you say, are going to be game changers and will make all the difference to those kids that have it really severely. Because you and I both know, and anybody who lives with someone or has had it themselves severely just knows as we've talked about how miserable it can make you and how it can be so disruptive to the rest of your life your quality of life and so that's that's fantastic to hear and i know that you're a specialist not just in children but also adult dermatology but of course you know once i suppose in the smaller children eczema is the most common thing but as kids move into those adolescent years a lot of kids who've never had eczema or any other conditions will will develop acne and i was keen to ask you about that as well because i think that's another skin condition that people are very interested in knowing what's going on in terms of approaches and GPs too are very keen to be upskilled. So just give us a quick overview of acne. What do we know about it and what causes it?
1: So we know that it's pretty much inevitable going to get some sort of acne during puberty. The milder forms are just predominantly what we call comedonal acne, which is blackheads and whiteheads, non-scarring. And for that sort of acne, The use of topical treatments, keratolytics, we call them, like such as adapalene or different or the retinoic acids are really fantastic. And you use that every single day to the whole area because the the thinking is that it's not spot treatment. It's trying to prevent under the surface blackheads and whiteheads from also developing. So you want to just do field treatment. And then you get moderate acne, which usually the papules and pustules hopefully without associated scarring. And for that sort of acne, you would consider going up the therapeutic ladder, topical agent, as well as oral medication. Mm. So that would be either in the form of an inflammatory antibiotic, minocycline or doxycycline, one of the tetracyclines, or spironolactone, which is more hormonally based, or the oral contraceptive pill with the lower dose estrogen pills, such as Yaz or Yasmin, being particularly good for acne.
0: And so with the antibiotics that you've mentioned, minocycline, for example, or doxy. So if you're going to use that as an anti-inflammatory and you use it twice a day, is that right? And then how long would you actually use it for? Like, a, how would, long would it take to get a response? And then b, if you did get a response, how long do you leave somebody on it?
1: So firstly, with these oral anti-inflammatory antibiotics. The main thing is to tell the family and and the patient that it's not going to be a quick fix. You're not going to take it. And then the formal is in three days and you're going to have beautiful, clear skin. So it does take six weeks before it starts to turn the corner. And you're looking at about two to three months before you think, oh, yes, this is actually working. And it has to be regular. You've got to take it regularly every day for a good response. But in the past, we used to keep patients on anti-inflammatory antibiotics for 18 months, two years. And we now know that we don't need to do that. And in fact, that's really important because of this growing concern about antibiotic resistance. So if you see that they're starting to respond after two to three months, I would keep them on for another three to four months. And then if things are good, start to wean off and just then keep on with the topical agents. So you're looking at about six to nine months.
0: So you talked about antibiotic resistance, which I, I guess everybody sort of understands um, that concept of the longer you're on it, the more that's likely. But what about the gut microbiome? So if you're on you know, a low-dose antibiotic, surely that mucks up your gut microbiome and then leaves you vulnerable to <laughs> perhaps an unintended consequence of something else happening. Is that the case or not?
1: Well, I tell my patients that are taking the minimicin to then try and take a probiotic at the other end to counteract that. But I am. Um, I' not seeing, thankfully, much in the way of side effects um, with gut issues. Mm,
0: okay, that's good. What about Roaccutane? So obviously, that's going to go in with the big gun if somebody has severe or moderate to severe acne. Mm. What's the story with Roaccutane?
1: So Roaccutane, it's just wonderful, and it is usually used for the most. Awful scarring, nodular cystic, you know, those painful, awful lesions that it's just terrible. And it is a vitamin A derived medication. What it does is it decreases the activity and the number of all your oil glands. So it works beautifully. And it also helps with collagen remodeling, elastin remodeling. So it helps as well with associated scarring, which is really important. The main side effect then is, of course, the associated dryness. But we're moving now from treating full-on, a full-on war with huge doses and your lips are falling off, your, your skin is so dry. We're moving now to instead treating with lower doses of Roacutane because we know that it works just as well and just as fast, but the side effect profile is far less. Like you will only experience the mildest of dry lips or skin dryness.
0: Because the original dose was what, 40 milligrams or something? to 60 milligrams. And I've seen patients get really great responses that have been under dermatologists being on 10. Yes. Or 10 not even every day and still getting good response. So it's fascinating to see how we're sort of lowering the line. Um, That common in the the, um, medicinal world that we suddenly suggest, okay, take less and less and less. But Roaccutane, it seems as though we're getting clues that perhaps a tiny bit nudges the system enough to get results. And
1: the way I like to do it is I like to treat... At low dose, but for double the time, and the benefit for that is yes, we have more time for the body to regenerate, as you know, with the collagen remodeling. But it also then controls the predisposition to get a flare during the time when these kids are most likely doing important things like the HSC. That's when really acne is at its worst, and and you just don't need to think about acne when you've got other stuff going on. Mm. And I suppose the other thing to talk about roaccutane is we now know that there is really no causal link and no concern about taking roaccutane and the development of mood change and depression which was quite a worry in the past, but there's really good solid evidence to suggest that in fact, that there is no link. But the converse, that if you've got awful acne, you are going to feel depressed and anxious and overwhelmed socially.
0: Well, that's reassuring because I guess a lot of people got spooked about using it because they thought perhaps it increases suicidal thoughts yeah. or, or behaviours and, and that's just something that nobody wants to go there with that. So, as, but as you say, the psychological ramifications of of having severe acne it can be quite awesome. profound um the other thing i wanted to ask you about was just the lifestyle interventions that are involved with skin because a lot of people would like to really do something themselves in terms of nutrition and there's an enormous amount of interest in nutrition and skin yes. um and i know that in the old days it used to be this sort of what we thought was a myth you know chocolate gives you acne and We sort of tried to dispel that myth, and then perhaps we're having to go back on our tracks and sort of go actually, there is evidence that there are some links between nutrition and skin. Yes. Talk me through that.
1: That's right. Um, It's come full circle. So now we know that acne is triggered, and you will get a flare if your insulin levels are high. And that happens when you eat a lot of glucose, and therefore. Sugary drinks, fizzy drinks, lollies, a whole favorites box of chocolates will definitely set you off. Easter is the worst time for acne. And so if you can eat a low GI diet in contrast and avoid anything white, I say, so no white bread, white pasta, that will definitely help. And a low GI diet will then give you a constant and steady low stream of insulin release I also tell patients to exercise regularly because that increases metabolic rate and is also good for mood and for well-being, but great for acne and to avoid whey-based products. So milk, basically. So there's studies to show that if you drink half a carton of milk, that's going to really flare your acne. And if you are trying to bulk up, like so many teenage boys are, then bulk up with other Protein powders other than whey-based protein powders, so pea protein powder is good. Bone broth or brown rice
0: powder—they're mm. all good. That's all really great advice. And what about some of the other things? So, you know, people say to their kids and to their patients, don't ever pick pimples. I mean, they're so right. They're so right. Don't, don't pick them. them. <laughs> don't pick those pimples. And what about the sun? Because I guess every teenager that gets an outbreak goes, "I'll just go on sunbake now because it will somehow, you know, clear my skin." No,
1: everybody needs an AVO taken out against their (laughs) skin. They cannot pick and they can't let their mother pick for them as well. (laughs) And because it leads to post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation or inflammation, and especially if you have Asian or Mediterranean skin, that's what you're going to be left with to remind you of your pimple, Mm. you know. And then if you go out in the sun, double trouble because you will then get more post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So sit on your hands and use the topical different or retinoid or keratolytic to that spot to try it and decrease the
0: inflammation quickly. Mm -hmm. And what about if people get scarring? Mm. Have we sort of come up with things that can actually make a difference? Because a lot of people have unfortunately got quite profound acne scarring on their face, which they're very self-conscious about.
1: Yes.
0: What can be done when there is scarring on the face like that?
1: So there is. And that's the other thing. So we treat aggressively, we treat with Roaccutane, And then once the acne is over, there are physical treatments that can be so helpful, such as resurfacing lasers, like Fraxel resurfacing laser, medium depth chemical peels can also be helpful, and subscision, So actually breaking up the fibers of scarring underneath the skin surface uh, can be helpful as well. So there's a lot that we can do now.
0: But none of those are on Medicare, are they? So if you've got somebody who's from a background where access and cost is tricky, I mean, Fraxel is going to cost a lot, you know, I don't know, 1200 1500 a go, and you might need multiple treatments. So is there anything that's sort of available for people that don't necessarily have the funds to explore those options?
1: Yeah. So you would definitely treat aggressively, as we said, and then you could even try just cosmeceuticals. So there's good evidence to say that if you use vitamin A topically after you've stopped the roaccutane, and as well nicotinamide or hyaluronic acid, that can be very helpful if you use it on a regular basis. And of course, anal use of sunscreen, SPF 50 sunscreen will as well help with reducing the dispigmentation of acne scarring.
0: Mm. Oh, that's good to be reminded of those things. And one last thing I wanted to pick your brains on while I have you here, because it's great to learn all of this about the skin and certainly get an update. But there was one other thing I wanted to explore, which was this whole area of skin and whether we're in fact using too many antibiotics with skin conditions. Because what I observe is that a lot of people are quite liberal with dispensing antibiotic scripts for oral antibiotics, particularly if somebody's had a little skin excision or, you know, they've got a red spot on their fingernail or something like that. They go take these antibiotics just in case. Do we need to rethink our relationship with antibiotics and the skin a little? I think we do
1: because we're just seeing an increase in antibiotic resistance, which is a, a little worrying because there is also, we now know that if you have antibiotic resistant cells that they can then be spread through into the environment and to other people. So it it does spread. We've got to be really careful about how we prescribe our antibiotics. And we we do use a lot of it uh, in dermatology for acne, as you say, for perioperative skin infection control, but also hydratonitis supprativus, rosacea as well. Uh, But there are alternatives. So I think we've just got to get our mindset different to think of other alternatives. Um, For instance, so when we treat acne, you would only use a topical antibiotic if it was used in conjunction with a keratolytic and or benzoyl peroxide because there is no resistance that can ever develop with the benzyl peroxide, and it helps prevent or lower the risk of topical antibiotic resistance.
0: Can I just tease it out a little bit? So if somebody was going to use that combination, which is yep. a prescription topical antibiotic, yep. and then they'd use it with an over-the-counter benzoyl peroxide. Is that what you're saying? And you, yes. do you mix them together or does one go on first? Or
1: So yes, you can do that. You can just buy Benzac wash separately or Benzol cream, which is Benzac cream, which comes in at 2.5%, 5% and 10%. Or you can get topical creams that have a mixture of, for instance, clindamycin topically with benzoyl peroxide, and that's called DUAC. So you can get an all-in-one and you would therefore choose that In contrast to just getting Clindatec lotion,
0: right? And the Duac is prescription only for people listening. So talk to their GP about the Duac or the combo of that treatment. Okay, well that's that's good. So yes, we need to redefine our relationship as you say because um, antibiotic resistance globally is a real problem and I guess that every little bit makes a difference in terms of reducing our chances of developing resistance and overusing things and having unintended consequences as a result, really important. So thanks for that update on those very interesting areas, eczema and acne and also our antibiotic use in skin. I've certainly learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have too, those health professionals listening and also consumers who are naturally very interested in their skin or the skin of somebody else they know. So that's so all we have time for. But thank you very much to dermatologist Dr. Lee Chin Wong. Thank you, Lee Chin, for being with us.
1: Thanks, Caroline. Thank you very much.
0: And if you'd like any more information on anything you've heard in this podcast, please go to our website at nps.org.au. And also if you'd like information on CPD points associated with this activity. I'm Dr. Caroline West. Bye for now. See you next time. For more information about the safe and wise use of medicines, visit the NPS MedicineWise website at nps.org.au.